Alright, welcome back everybody, this is the Faultline Podcast. My name is Alex Davis, and joining me in the room today are our editor, Tommy Flanagan. Hello, in the room. And colleague Ravi Cohen. Hello. Excellent stuff. Um, Tommy, uh, it's been an interesting week for me, but how's it been on the news front? Um, yeah, fairly decent. Um, I thought I'd start off, well, I, I did start off this week writing a uh, a piece on the Beijing Olympics and uh, all about, we write about innovations in, in sports tech fairly regularly and it got me thinking last weekend, last Saturday in fact, I was at, um, at a pub, a sports pub watching the uh, the rugby and um, it had one of the greatest sports innovations I've ever seen because in the toilet in this pub was upstairs and above the urinals <laughs> in this pub were portholes where you could look down to the massive screen and not miss a second of the action. So just a, an actual physical hole in the wall is the greatest technological innovation. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> all this 8K VR that we've been writing about, all you need is a hole in the wall. Um, but I'm a lot more easily pleased than um, uh, most people. Anyway, um, to some actual stuff. Uh, as promised, we got greening of streaming on the phone um, this week. Um, if you managed to listen to the end of last week's podcast... Um, I said we were going to jump on a call, and we did. This is a non-profit sustainability project that's only about five months old, um, set up for the streaming world um, um, by uh, Dom Robinson, who is uh, pretty renowned in the uh, CDN circles, and he's recruited his buddy Adam as the full-time executive director, and he comes from a completely non-technical business management background so I think that's a really shrewd matchup and it's, it's getting a lot of atten- attention um, so I was quite sceptical going into this call at first um, as I am with these type of non-profits because you know we like to write about these bleeding edge technologies and the fast-paced changes that happen across marketplaces and typically these kind of groups are all a bit fluffy all about long-term visions uh, that never happen. They they talk a good talk, but don't do much walking the walk, um, ultimately. So it was quite quite refreshing that straight off um, we they they acknowledged that there are a lot of groups have a lot of failings, and so greening streaming is trying to do things differently. So we've been quite vocally uh, critical of things like the content uh, climate pledge or climate content pledge one of those, um, because all it did was really shift the blame to consumers. We've, we've waxed lyrical about that quite a lot, and shifting blame is something that's um, very rife in sustainability and, um, and, and environmental issues. And so on top of that, you know, these same companies that signed the, the, the pledge, which was a PR stunt designed as a pledge, um, the, these are the guys, the Sky, BT, BBC, these, these are the guys that are talking about these net zero targets when really all they've actually said is they're going to migrate the bulk production to the cloud and stop driving these huge OB trucks to events. That's about it, really. So the view from Greeny Streaming is that you can't really reach net zero doing just that. It doesn't work like that. So it was really refreshing to hear it from people actually driving these uh, sustainability projects. Uh, you know, we're in the, the same boat as, um, uh, as as being openly critical to these companies because if you don't criticize them you don't encourage change then then how are you going to get changed and these are the same people that they want to uh, sign up as members 
right now it's all about vendor members. So it's got Akamai, Atem, uh, Broadpeak. Intel is by far its um, biggest uh, member, which was quite interesting because um, of an article uh, Alex did last week about uh, Nokia shifting from Intel to AMG, AMG. <laughs> for 40% power saving. Um, I remember that bit. Um, but you know, Dom and Adam, they said, yeah, they want to get Netflix to design a BT or to sign up. In reality, that's never going to happen because I mean, that would mean these massive companies have to take more responsibility and engage with the little guys. And that, in turn, kind of looks bad, reflects bad on their their own so-called sustainable uh, initiatives. So what are they doing about it? In terms of people, they've got to target people. They want to pressure policymakers, as everyone does. That's the ultimate prize. Easier said than done. However, there is an official parliamentary launch event happening near the House of Commons in June. So that's a massive opportunity to brush shoulders with some important people. And yes, Faultline is on the guest list. So let me know any politicians you'd like me to accost and see what I can do. As for technology, it's really interesting because just a couple of years ago, these sustainability issues were really primarily a CFO problem and now it's they're, they're observing how it's really a cto issue now and a lot of ctos are really reluctant uh, to acknowledge that even though it is and and getting ctos to sign up to this kind of initiative um, is is extremely tricky but they're working on it they're, they're getting progress as i said only five months old for god's sake i'd only heard about them two weeks ago um the the other thing that they really need to figure out is what they're measuring and how to measure it. We, we've spoken a lot about Albert, not the dog who's currently um, under my feet, but the, the carbon calculator for the production world. So um, Green is Streaming kind of sits in between Albert and, and a group called Impact. And they're all about um, looking at the, the bigger picture and the end-to-end -end infrastructure. And they're, they're quite adamant that they've been kind of forgotten about. And it's all about consumer devices and... Um, and, and production. So um, they want to contract third-party scientific groups to take its data set once it gets stuck, gets this this data flow formation started, um, which we are told is going to commence in the coming weeks. And and these um, scientific groups are going to do some really clever things with it. And then this approach is going to involve extracting data from end-to-end -end infrastructure and you know having Akamai and Intel um, involved in that and it gives you a, a pretty good uh, starting point so I know it sounds extremely dull but working groups are a pretty important thing for these these kind of groups so it's got three working groups set up there's a fourth in the pipe in the pipeline the the first is all about terminologies that is the bane absolute bane of any group that's trying to get people on the same page you need to have common terminologies all of that it's boring but it's essential and then there's the tricky task of figuring out exactly what to measure how to measure gains and improvements made by members and then it's all about outreach followed by the third group which is all about promoting best practices that comes further down the line um i mean the uh, what i really liked is that um the first rule of greening and streaming absolutely mandatory rule is no greenwashing so They've acknowledged that that is a very common thing uh, in, in the streaming industry. And obviously, they didn't say this, but I, I had to add it on. That the second rule of green streaming is to tell absolutely everyone about greening of streaming. And um, finally, final point, 
um, is that we have said to Greening is Streaming that we want to kind of have a quid pro quo deal. We're going to make our environmental, sustainable focused articles um, available free for them to share with their members and, and hopefully we can get a little bit of um, insider um, access back, really. So, um, yeah, I, I can't remember off the top of my head how much memberships are. It's not ridiculously expensive, but, um, yeah, they're going to put on some um, mainly online events. That's kind of the, the biggest thing. But as I said, there's going to be a, a few um, physical events as well. And it's all about the bigger picture. So check them out. Excellent stuff. Yeah, a bit of renewable back scratching. Um, yeah, sign me up for that uh, terminology working group. That is right up my street. Absolutely. I've got a feeling that might be a members only closed door oh, thing. But we'll in. see what we can do. Let <laughs> me in, Dom. Um, sweet. Right, thank you very much, Tommy. Uh, we'll dive now into the second uh, long form article. This, of course, is from Rafi. And is ATSC 3.0 a knight in shining armor for TV ad sync? Rafi, is it? Tell me more. So yeah, this is um, off the back of a conversation I had with um, the CEO of a company called TV AdSync, um, Ronan Higgins, very nice guy. Um, and he was essentially just telling me about what they do. You know, they're an audience data broker um, and analytics house. So they sell TV viewership data to advertisers and publishers. And then on the flip side, they also provide analytics to join all the dots that this data provides um, and spot commercial conversions, campaign evaluation, all that stuff. And but the main focus of the discussion was kind of how as someone that's kind of brokering data that you don't generate yourself is, you know, can be really hard to keep on top of an ever shifting ecosystem. And as as data becomes ever more valuable, you know, especially audience data, viewership data, um, you've kind of kind of got to constantly hustle and scope out new opportunities and technologies in order to get your product. Um, so initially, we're like, we went all the way back to, you know, 2016-ish. That's when they first majorly started doing this in the US. Um, about then, the data was coming from automatic content recognition or ACR technology on smart TVs. Um, they have partnerships with various vendors like Cognitive Networks in the US. Um, and then in what would become quite a common narrative, Vizio acquired that company because Vizio wanted a piece of ACR technology, uh, renamed it Inkscape, which it still operates under today, the Inkscape technology. Um, and then TV AdSync was still able to access all of that until the launch of Vizio Ads in 2021. And then this created a conflict of interest because as we know, all smart TV OEMs are trying to get in on the advertising business because they have loads of CTV ad inventory that they can sell themselves. And this means that they want the ACR data for themselves, so they have the best targeting over their competitors. Um, we also saw the same happen with Roku recently, uh, acquiring Nielsen's advanced advertising business. Um, and then the same with LG acquiring Alfonso, uh, which cut out many local US broadcasters, which were also re relying on that the measurement data that came from Alfonso's ACR technology. So all around the US well, and the wider world, you have this pattern of uh, TV OEMs buying up ACR data, com ACR collection companies, um, and then kind of ring fence and then bring them into the World Garden. And then you've got all, all these third party players that no longer have access to that data. Um, so TV AdSync have kind of, they moved on to the next best thing, which was set up data, um, which I said was a rather unf unfashionable choice, but it seems to be going okay for them. Um, one of the downsides is that you can't it's only really at a household level especially if there's only like two set top if there's two set tops in the house then you're only getting really data for the whole household but uh, ronan said that's fine apparently most advertisers are happy with 
household only data. Um, but apparently set tops is still a fairly untapped market in terms of the fact that cable codes are only just really clocking on to the huge wealth of data that they have and how valuable it is. Um, but already we're seeing partnerships pop up between kind of ad tech and measurement companies and uh, cable codes. So already we've seen like exclusive partnerships between the likes of Ampersand and Altis or 605 and Charter, uh, which made me, you know, think, are we not just on the same slippery slope that we were on before with ACR? Um, surely the set top, you know, cable companies are just as primed to cut out third parties like TV AdSync um, and just bring their data into the wall gardens or make exclusive partnerships or then acquire the companies that they make these partnerships with. Um, so exclusivity and acquisition are surely on the horizon and many of the deals, you know, such as the ones with Charter and 605 say they're exclusive at the time, but Ronan said he had it on good authority that these are not quite as exclusive as the release would have you believe and that the set-top data ecosystem is becoming more open. Uh, I'm still a bit dubious about that, but you seem confident. But if it does, you know, we'll go to share, then we have what the headline of this piece was referencing, which is that ATSC 3.0 is the first kind of opportunity for broadcasters to have their own stake, whole stake in the data ecosystem. Um, essentially, the way it works is you can um, you can deploy a watermark-like technology in your broadcast stream, and then TV companies can pick this up and report back via URL. Um, the footprint of TVs that can actually do this is still pretty small, but um, he showed me some pretty impressive graphs showing potential projections of ATSC 3.0 deployments in US TVs. Well, these were from Pell TV, which are always the ATSC 3.0 evangelists. Um, and obviously, you know, I said we're skeptical. It's taken ages to kick off, but you know, he said it's obviously been the butt of many jokes. But it seems like the next two years are really when it's going to start accelerating. Um, but, you know, so we'll just listen to a company about how they're having to juggle and jump from different source to different source as all these things get closed up and as data becomes more valuable, which is all important because people are just getting increasingly fed up with the traditional way of measuring things and measuring audiences such as Nielsen. So it's, yeah, it's just who knows what's going to happen, but the battle for data is probably only going to intensify. Great stuff. Um, Fault-line podcast drinking game. Um, we mentioned Nielsen, so <laughs> have a shot. Um, yeah, uh, we'd be quite interested to see if we get another you know, antitrust angle for set-offs and, and add uh, co content recognition data. Um, yeah, it could be quite juicy. Um, so yeah, thanks very much, Rafi. Uh, we'll dive in now to our final long-form piece. Um, and this one um, is uh, video inflation much higher than Comcast CEO thinks will get worse. So the the main thrust here uh, on the recent earnings call, uh, Comcast CEO Brian Roberts says, oh, and you know, it's great for Peacock because uh, video spending has, has gone up by sort of 10% since 2014. And just immediately that, that doesn't sound right because most measures of inflation last year had it at about 5 to 6%. Uh, and that's just for one year and there were many more years um, since 2014. So that uh, led me down a bit of a rabbit hole of filling out a, an Excel sheet and working out the sort of sum of uh, you know annual inflation through the period, narrowed it down to look at the US. And um, unfortunately for Netflix, because it's been in the game the longest, uh, it's quite easy to make a graph that looks quite painful. Um, so through the period CPI, so that's Consumer Price Index, we're pulling this data from US Department of uh, uh, Labor Statistics. Uh, so the sort of point here is that 
the headline graph shows that CPI um, sums up to sort of 29% through the year, uh, sorry, through the period from 2010. Uh, pay TV is a slightly above that, sort of 39%, and Netflix is, you know, way up top, um, and it looks horrendous and awful, but also noticeably, broadband is very close to zero through the period. And of course, over that 2010 to 22 period, Netflix has gone from 7.99 up to 15.49. It's been forced to invest tens of billions of dollars into original content because its rivals have begun hoarding the IP so they can launch their own services. And that means that you can make a bunch of uh, awkward headlines if you leave those facts out uh, and say that the sort of actual cost of Netflix should be more like um, $10.32. Uh, if you pick a few different metrics, um, you can make the claim it should be $8 something instead of $7. But yeah, it's a 94% uh, increase through the period. But um, I mean, it's a company that's gone from being able to hoover up rights for sort of anything you know, the, the joke was that anything was on Netflix to a company that has to invest in original content because I don't think it could uh, license the biggest titles from companies, even if it was offering, uh, yeah, the, the the sort of best contract possible. Um, they, they would want to keep it for their own services. So, um, yeah, the sort of main gist here then is, well, if Netflix has gone up a lot, what should you um, compare it to? Should you view it as utility? So something like water, you can make the case that broadband is a utility these days and and therefore Netflix has you know shot up uh, exponentially and, and therefore it's not fair. Or should you compare it to just regular inflation, in which case, again, it's sort of three times higher. Uh, and then cynically, you could uh, make the case that you should compare it to pay TV. But the pay TV price inflation is a bit strange because, of course, we've had the pressure of um, cord cutting, which has probably kept price increases down to a minimum. And if they were if you you track it back much further um, back to the 80s when the the first sort of bits of data start appearing. um, Yeah, the the price of your sort of cable package would be uh, much, much higher today if you sort of led it forwards. So, yeah, there's lots of numbers in there. Um, I know this is an audio medium, so I don't want to sort of um, batter you with stuff you'll forget. Uh, there's graphs and stuff for, for you to look at. Um, but the the sort of interesting pie chart, really, um, is that if you sum every annual increase, so if you say you add all the increases from 2010 through to today, and you divide that between the amount that's gone up attributed to Netflix, pay TV, internet, and CPI, Netflix is 56% of all the increases. The broadband slash internet services is just 3%. CPI, so the actual rate of inflation in the economy is 17.4, and then pay TV is 23. So um, again, right, uh, like this is just more fuel for the fire that the Netflix is exorbitantly um, you know expensive these days, but that's just the problem it has for kind of being first because there's not enough data um, in the system for us to sort of pull on because none of its rivals have really been running longer than kind of 2019. Amazon's the the longest running rival, but it doesn't ever publish a price. It's sort of hidden in the background. Um, So the next couple of years will be really interesting, I think, because we'll get more data points to actually compare Netflix to its closest rivals um, and be able to say something a bit more um, authoritative. So yeah, uh, another week of me uh, fiddling around with spreadsheets, answering questions that I I had a hunch might be interesting. But this one, yeah, it's, um, it's quite good, I think. Um, so yeah, that's about it, I think, for the, the long form, right? Yeah, something that's been um, going around um, the UK news this week is that if you cancel your Netflix subscription, 
within a couple of months you'll be able to buy your own house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to factor that into the next um, graph. That's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> how, how many houses to a Netflix subscription? Thanks, Kirsty. Yeah, which is funny because Phil used to um, uh, frequent this very building, didn't he? Oh, no, 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 one Phil. You've just Was mixed, it not? You've just mixed up Phil with the esteemed Kevin McLeod. How, oh my how God, could you I do this? Because <gasps> they're both bald and middle-aged and white. And involved in property. And wear suits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> involved in property. It's probably quite easily done. I don't think yeah. I'm the first person to have done that. <laughs> no. But, um, yeah, uh, it, it, was a, it was a good article, that one. I had fun with it. Um, but, of course, there's many more in, in Faultline. You can uh, take a look, uh, of course. But we'll move on now, as is tradition, to the Worth Noting section. So, Rafi, five years ago, uh, what was happening this week? Uh, Max Linear acquired Marvell's G.HN business for the paltry sum of $21 million, um, which sent shockwaves through the home networking community. Um, there were some suspicions that this was simply a case of Max Linear trying to buy up the competition to shut it down. But Farline felt this wasn't the case because Max Linear had only recently become cash rich, uh, well, back in 2017. And there were around four or five cheaper sources for the G.HN technology. So clearly something else going on. Uh, it looked like Max Linear wanted G.HN as it saw a future in the Powerline version of the technology as Homeplug fell into decline. Um, and the bargain price kind of raised questions about the profit potential of G.HN, but maybe it would have looked like it could have fared better in a smaller business. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed no one ever tried to tell us it was actually called Gahun, unlike Gafust. But um, yeah, no, there's, there's loads of really cool silicon that never really went anywhere. Do you remember Mocha, Tommy? That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was quite cool. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, just completely dead now, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, Rip Mocha. Um, G.HN's out there somewhere doing something, but not particularly interesting, right? Well, um, segueing into uh, my silicon related worth noting, um, this is funny because I was listening earlier in the week to FCC Commissioner Jeffrey Stark's wax lyrical about uh, Wi Fi, and he was talking about. I mean, loads and loads and loads has been written about the the silicon supply chain shortage for everything, cars, um, set-tops, mobiles, Wi-Fi. And in this context, he was talking about Wi-Fi and how really he's he's monitoring it. That doesn't mean anything. And how the FCC is basically powerless to do anything about it. But what was funny is that uh, a couple of hours ago, got something in from the uh, European Commission saying that they want to tackle this global semiconductor supply shortage head on they want to throw 43 billion euros 49 about 49 billion dollars um at increasing europe's silicon market share to about 20 percent by 2030 trying to make it uh the continent a bit of a a force and not be so reliant on on china it's called the european chips act and it's going to be a mix of uh, public and private um, investments. I thought that was um, quite interesting. And um, um, what <laughs> really funny happened at the event I was tuned into this week. I don't want to throw the person under the bus. It was the editor of a very well-known uh, news outlet. But when said Commissioner Starks was talking about um, the, the supply chain shortage and saying that how how hard the the Wi-Fi um, um, market has been hit and this person went what I didn't know there was any uh, wireless um, chip shortage and my just my jaw just dropped the so-called uh, wireless expert <laughs> and I think that kind of um, set the bar really but um, 
yes. Anyway, anything from worth noting for you? Al? Nice. Uh, yeah. How much? How long is a piece of string? How much does it cost to replace Huawei and ZTE in the US? Well, if you're applying a, if you're applying for funding from the FCC, apparently the answer is five point six billion dollars, which is oh, um, yes. yeah, hefty and um, uh, well over what they sort of initially budgeted, which was one point nine. Um, and that number was already a lot higher than the initial projection of one billion. So, um, yeah, that's it's not gone well, not gone well in the US. But um, yeah, sweet, right? Thanks very much, gentlemen. That was fault line nine hundred twenty-five. Tommy, is there anything lined up for nine hundred twenty-six? Nine twenty-six is going to be a juicy streaming media connect virtual affair which is going to be very codec heavy. I know a lot of our audience are well into that low latency um, stuff as well as the the video codecs and um, probably a bit of ATSC3 stuff thrown in there as well. That's, yeah, all happening virtual. But funnily enough, this week I booked my tickets to um, Boston uh, in May for the actual streaming media East event, which will be my debut there. well, touch with, don't want to jinx it, but yes, hopefully be there in person in May and virtually next week. Excellent stuff. Yep, Rafi and I are still looking for a, a whole whole load more Mobile Congress interviews. So if you're listening, um, we'd love to speak to you. So Alex at RethinkResearch.biz, please. Um, and that same domain is where you'll find Faultline, of course, um, on uh, free four-week free trials. Uh, Rethink TV, that's where our exec summaries are. Uh, you can check those out as well. Uh, please leave us uh, a review on your podcasting app of choice. Um, check out the YouTube channels. The, there's a few more video rants up. Uh, here hear uh, Tommy dropping some, some truth bombs on the video uh, industry. And, uh, yeah, that's it, I think, for this week. So, um, yeah, bye-bye for me. Yeah. What percentage is your uh, colourful beer, by the way? Oh, that is a 5.4. It's very fruity, though. Oh, nice. It's really strange. I think I've done about half a can, so it's slow going. (laughs) It's very tart. Tart beer, boys. Oh. On that note, um, yeah, cheers, everyone. Speak to you next week. Bye. See ya.